following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. So this is my final sermon as pastor of All Saints. Hopefully not my final sermon here forever. So hoping to, to come back from time to time. As I prayed about this final sermon, um, I thought this message would be most fitting. Through the centuries, it would be difficult to overstate the good the church has done in the world, both for individuals and societies. Yet the multitude of blessing has not been without all sorts of issues. Not that this is an excuse, but its members, all of us, are not perfect. One of the great tragedies of history has been how, for the most part, the church has misrepresented Jesus to his own people. In fact, his people, the people of Israel, have they themselves have been misrepresented in Jesus' name. I don't have time to completely explain it, but at the core of all this is something that's been called replacement theology, the idea that God is finished with the Jewish people, that God had chosen the Jewish people in Old Testament times, when the Messiah came, they didn't recognize him, rejected him for the most part, and so then God moved to a, like a plan B, uh, that the this what we call the church, something completely distinct and different, and replacing Israel with a new chosen people. In fact, many, many um, believers, teachers, preachers, denominations, statements talk about the church as the new Israel, even though that's never stated in the scriptures. This morning, we're going to look at a foundational chapter that provides a biblical perspective on what I'm calling God's heart for Israel. We're going to be focusing on Romans chapter 11. And by the way, I'm using the term Israel to refer to the Jewish people. That's the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're not talking about the state of Israel, the country. We're talking about the people that um, about half today live in the land of Israel and the other half outside the land of Israel. Now, the issue of the people of Israel was crucial to Paul who saw himself, understood himself rightly as the apostle to the Gentiles. He was sent specifically to to spearhead the good news of the Messiah to the nations. And yet, clearly, he has quite a heart, a continuing heart for his own people. So he mainly deals with this issue in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, and we'll be mainly focusing on chapter 11. But first of all, a couple of words about the book of Romans itself. First of all, it's a magnificent book of the Bible, but it's a letter, actually. As we know, there's about half the New Testament are letters written either to individuals or to particular communities. Often, the book of Romans has been treated like a theological treatise, almost like a theological textbook. But we miss much of what Paul is saying there. We miss much of what God is intending to say to us when we don't regard it as a real letter to real people in a real context. So the letter is often read in this sort of very theological way. 
and a lot of the letters are written this way, as if we've got the first half is theology, and the latter half or third or quarter is the application of that theology, as if these letters are about teaching principles of life, and then we figure out how those general principles of life work out in our own day. So much of the Bible is taught like that, and the book of Romans, uh, really so. But that's not really what's going on here. Paul's writing to real people in a real situation, and he's seeking to address certain things about what he thinks is either happening or is is about to happen. He's trying to bring some correction to this, what will become a very important Christian community. Now, the first eight chapters of the book of Romans is a magnificent explanation and exploration of God's work of salvation for all people through Jesus. And my own little summary would be that all people, Jew or Gentile, can know God, his forgiveness, his peace, and his presence through the power of the Holy Spirit through the Messiah, Jesus. This is made real not by who we are, not by what we've done or haven't done, but rather as a gift of God's grace. Now this, that has been done, that salvation has, is something that's a gift, that's all of God through faith and not works, leads to an important issue for Paul. And it's about what about God's original covenant people, the people of Israel? Why is it that if God is so center in all this and, and, it's, and his work of rescue, of salvation, of reconciliation of people to himself, if it's all of him and not of us, how come it seems that the original chosen people seem, seem to be playing the role of the antagonist in this story? When we read the book of Acts, we see that's often what happened. Paul would go, he would start when he goes to a new city, he would go to a local synagogue, he would get an opportunity to share the truth about the Messiah, Jesus, and the people that would be the most upset, the people that would be most contrary, would often be the Jewish leadership, the leadership of those synagogues, and then that would result in him taking the message to non-Jews. Where you read the book of Acts, it, it, it looks like, um, you, you almost could get this impression that Jewish people are giving a big no, and non-Jews are giving a big yes to Jesus. That's far too simplistic of how to look at it, because there are many, many Jews who did come to believe. We read of tens of thousands in Jerusalem when Paul visits there near the end of Acts. But at the same time, who are the main antagonists to this attempt to bring the good news to the nations? It tends to be the Jewish leadership, not exclusively, but it does, that tends to be the case. Now, when we get to Romans 9, 10, 11, where Paul deals with the, the question of Israel, there's been, based, there's been a general approach to how those chapters should be regarded. There's 16 chapters. Paul didn't write in chapters, of course. It was just one long letter, but later on, it got chopped up into, into chapters with verse numbers added. But, so the way that letter tends to get analyzed is one through eight is the wonderful theological explanation of salvation. And then nine to 11 is often treated as what's called parenthetical. You can put brackets around it. I remember encountering this in Bible college when I, one of my favorite courses was on, on the letter of Romans. And the professor talked about how we could take out 9, 10, 11, put it on the side. We could look at it by itself. And, and you'll see this. You'll even get 
you'll get sermon series where 9 to 11 are skipped out because of this view that we start with these theological principles, wonderful things about God and his salvation, and then we could jump to chapter 12 where we get into how then shall we live. And, and we tend to like that better in the way we want to teach Bible. And so then there's all sorts of theories about how 9 through 11 is supposed to work. Well, I don't believe in the parenthetical view. I believe that 9 to 11 is actually so much part and parcel of the overall discussion in the book of Romans. In, in, in fact, it seems to me that it actually contains the or one of the main points Paul is trying to get at in communicating what he's trying to say to the people, the believers in Rome. We have a clue that he's writing about particular issues, and we don't have time, of course, to get into all of this, but in chapter 14 through the beginning of chapter 15, we see that there were issues between Jews, Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome. And it looks like Paul was seeking to help them deal with those issues. And the foundation of what he starts to work out in chapter 14 about how everyone is supposed to get along together is, um, is he presses his point in chapter 11. And so it's all to say that what Paul is writing in Romans 9 through 11, where he focuses so much on how come it seems that Israel is not believing and is antagonistic towards the gospel, that whole section is actually very crucial to understanding the overall plan of God. And so um, I just I want to read uh, the first five verses of Romans 9 before we get into chapter 11. I'm using the word Messiah because that's what Christ in the Greek means. Christ and Messiah are synonymous, though in my experience, people tend to think of Christ as Jesus' last name and fail to understand that it's a title. Jesus the King would probably be, or King Jesus would probably be a really good way to translate it. But we'll go with Messiah, because that's where Christ is taken from. Chapter 9 of Romans 1 through 5. Paul writes, I'm speaking the truth in the Messiah. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from the Messiah for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, that's the Torah, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, the forefathers, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, before I get into Paul's heart for Israel, which is God's heart for Israel, what that should mean to us, I want to point out one thing. Notice that the man who had no trouble writing, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, and he wrote that from prison in his letter to the Philippians, the same person that's encouraging us to rejoice always talks about an unceasing anguish in his heart. Things are wrong in the world. They are not the way they should be. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
For Paul, one of the greatest things that was wrong with the world was that his own people, the people of Israel, for the most part, even though there are many who did believe, like himself, and he's going to talk about that, for the most part, had not embraced our own Messiah. And that totally devastated him in his heart. And he was able to say that he carried an unceasing anguish. And yet so many Christians think that it's inappropriate for true believers to carry that level of sorrow in their hearts. And yet you have them anyway. Now, we need to avoid pity parties, feeling sorry for ourselves. Yes. But there are things in our lives personally that are wrong, in our families, in our churches, in our communities, in our countries, in the world. And we cannot carry all those burdens or they'll crush us. But God places upon different ones of his people particular burdens to carry and they can be devastating and that's okay. Instead of running away from those um, authentic, legitimate sorrows that we might carry for those loved ones, for those communities, we are called to bring those burdens to the Lord and, and, and cry out to him in that anguish. It is okay for a true believer to feel really, really bad about things that are really, really bad. And what's interesting about what Paul says here is one commentator said Paul's language by repeating in all sorts of different ways, like his justification for this, his conscience bearing him witness in the Holy Spirit, he's telling the truth, he has a great sorrow and so on, is he's not just reflecting his own anguished heart, he's reflecting God's anguished heart for his chosen people, the people of Israel. And so as he goes through those first those two chapters in that section, 9 and 10, he explains that it's not as if God's word has failed. God is always free to do as he pleases. And he also talks about the difference between national covenant, God's made a covenant with the people of Israel as a people, and then there's how individuals uh, derive the benefits of that covenant, of that, of that agreement. Just because God makes a covenant with the Jewish people, that doesn't automatically mean that each of those individuals are going to connect with it properly. So then he comes to Romans 11. Remember, he didn't know he was writing Romans 11. Um, but this section is the, the crux of his argument, and we're going to go through uh, much of the chapter quickly. He writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul asks this rhetorical question, a question that seemed to be on many people's minds. Has God rejected the people of Israel? And he says, absolutely not. And his first reason for that, he says, look at me. How can you say that God's rejected the Jewish people? I'm part of the Jewish people. I am a natural descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin, he says. Now, 
a lot of interpreters, preachers, teachers get into this idea of spiritual Israel. He's not talking about a spiritual Israel. He's talking about a natural Israel because he's referring to his tribal connection. So just like Paul said, how could you say God's rejected his people? I myself am an Israelite, descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I could say, how can you say that? My wife and I and my kids, we are Israelites, descendants of Abraham, members of the tribe of Levi. How could you say God's rejected the Jewish people when he's accepted us? Verse 2. God's not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, the false god. So too, Paul writes, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. All through history, There's always been a part of the whole who have been true to God. That was true before Paul's day, that was true in Paul's day, and that's true in our day. In fact, today there are probably more Jewish believers in the world, believers in Jesus, Yeshua the Messiah, than ever before. So let's go down to verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? So clearly, as I mentioned, there, there does, it's Jewish people that appear to be antagonists in the gospel story. Of course, they would be because they're, it's originally all focused on the Jewish people, of course, in the gospels, and then as we move into the book of Acts. They were the in group. So who else would be the troublemakers? It's got to be the people in the in group. But then there were many who were believing, as I've already mentioned. But so, for the most part, as if we talk about the nation in general terms, they stumbled. They didn't, they, they didn't embrace the Messiah as many believed that they would when he came. But did they stumble in order that they may fall? Paul says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So God was working through the general rejection of Jesus on part of the Jewish people to bring God's salvation to the nations, which is very ironic. God chose Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, um, so that he would bless the nations. Messiah comes. Many Jewish people believe, most of them don't. Purpose of them coming is bless Israel and the nations. Now, as some people hoped that it would happen, majority of the Jewish people would believe and go off into the nations to bring the good news about God and the Messiah. It didn't happen that way. Instead, the majority rejected the message, but it became like a springboard to bring the gospel to the nations. That's how the stories worked out. So interestingly, Whether Israel succeeds or Israel fails, God uses us, say us because we're part of that nation, God uses us anyway. He promised that he would use Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants to bring blessing to the world, and whether we succeed or whether we fail, God is true to his promises anyway. And not only by their trespasses, 
has come to make Israel jealous. I mean, sorry, not only has uh, their trespass caused salvation to come to the Gentiles, there's supposed to be a boomerang effect by the Gentiles now receiving the blessing of salvation from God through the Messiah due to Israel's error. The blessing is supposed to come back. And we're going to get, we're going to get into that. Israel is supposed to have a response. And the response that it seems Paul was hoping Israel would have that hasn't happened yet, what he was hoping would happen is when the good news would go to the nations and the Holy Spirit would be, would be poured out upon every tribe, nation, and language, Paul was hoping that his own people would look at that and go, wow, look at the blessing of God on you all. They're sort of from the south. They're on you all. Wow, I guess we made a big mistake. You've got the blessing of our God. Can we have it? Can we also have it? But that's not exactly what what occurred. We'll, We'll continue on. Verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, notice... He's anticipating full inclusion. He's not anticipating a dwindling out of Israel. You had your chance, you blew it, you're out. No, he anticipates there will be a full inclusion, that one day Israel will come to believe in fullness. But what he's saying, though, is that look at how their failure has brought blessing to the nations. If their failure results in all this good stuff, how much more good stuff's going to happen when their full inclusion occurs, whenever that's going to be. Verse 13, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much that then that I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. It's making big of what God has given him to do in order to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So as I mentioned just a moment ago, it looks like what's going on here is he's hoping that his people are going to see the healings, the restorations, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the the repentance, the the burning of magic books that happens in in the book of Acts, the the turning away from idols, and, and seeing the power of the God of Israel working among the nations. And Paul was hoping that that would attract um, his people. Verse 15, for if the rejection means reconciliation of the world, that's what's happened, that's, in his day, that's what was happening, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Again, he's anticipating that his people who for the most part had rejected Jesus will come to accept him. But he's saying if the rejection has this wonderful effect of the nations coming to know the truth in, in, in Jesus. What's going to happen when the full number of Jewish people come to believe? And he says, what's it going to be like but life from the dead? Now, we don't know if he means it's the coming to faith of the Jewish people one day will result in the resurrection, the return of the Lord and everything that goes along with that. Or if he's talking about a resurrection life, that when the Jewish people come to believe in Jesus one day, we are going to see an outpouring of God's power like never before. And it's likely it's connected with the return of the Lord. 
I'm very careful about talking about the future. But I know what it's like. I've seen it myself. I've seen it in my own life. When one Jewish person comes to the Lord, there's, there's, it's, it's power packed. Something happens. And it's not, I was going to say it's not because we're special. People get really antsy when you talk about the Jewish people being special. But the Jewish people are special in a particular sort of way, not in other ways. We're not smarter. We're not more wealthy. We're not. I may have said it here. I love to say this because I still encounter most Christians think that, that Jewish, Jewish people are wealthy. And I like to say only the rich ones are. The poor ones are really poor. And it's, uh, when you think that all Jewish people are wealthy, it's my last Sunday here. It's, you're just expressing ignorance. You don't know my people and you don't know what you're talking about. Come with me to Montreal. Come to me to New York. Let's go to Israel and I'll show you the real state of the Jewish people. Many are successful. Many are not. There's Jewish people in prison, in mental hospitals, all sorts of broken relationships, all sorts of damage. Everything. It's, if anything, what the Jewish people really have is we're just like everybody else, but more so. Just, there's just more drama, more commotion, and more impact. For some reason, more impact. Now that I can accept. That's why you see Jewish people often as, the, as in charge of some of the biggest cults in the world. That we have all this calling on us, and when we don't do what God calls us to do, we do something else really, really big. And again, not all Jewish people. Not all, but there does seem to be this kind of impact that occurs with Jewish people. Why? Because there's a calling on us that was given to us as a gift through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Paul's saying, so do you realize what would happen when Jewish people actually come to the Lord in droves? Basically, you ain't seen nothing yet. Verse 16. If the dough offered as fruit, first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And what he's talking about here is, remember, there's this remnant. There's this smaller group of Jewish people who really do believe. And that, according to Paul, that has an effect on the whole nation. You cannot look at the, at the people of Israel and say they've been rejected by God. No, there is a remnant. And we stand, in a sense, for the whole. There is, there is some sort of recognition by God of this, of the believers among Israel that does a special connection of, or sanctification of the rest of the nation. Don't have time to get into that further. And then what follows, verse 17 through 22, might be the point of the entire letter. And this is where Paul gets into this wonderful picture of the olive tree. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you'll say, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provide you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And so Paul makes this 
paints this picture of an olive tree, these great magnificent ancient trees uh, that, are, that, are, that grow in the Middle East, and particularly in Israel. And the idea of grafting, where you, they would take uh, branches from another tree and attach them close to the top of the roots of a thriving tree. And so you take it, so what happens is that the cultivated tree can give the nourishment to these other branches. And this is the picture that he paints about God's plan. So the people of Israel are like an olive tree that God nurtured over time, cut it back, tended to it, dealt with it, and so on. And then through the preaching of Jesus, that's as if wild branches out from wild olive trees have been cut off from their wild trees and grafted in, stuck onto the nurtured tree. And so now we have a nurtured tree with these foreign branches stuck into it, all sharing the same root together. Um, and so Paul is, is, is saying that when Jewish people don't believe, their branches get lopped off. When non-Jewish people come to believe, they're stuck on, grafted in. And he's encouraging the non-Jewish believers. Remember, he's an apostle to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. That was his calling. And he saw something was going on. And I call it a new kid on the block mentality. It seemed what was going on in the minds of the non-Jewish believers was, God's now preferring us, the non-Jews. He had done all this for the Jewish people, and they're so ungrateful, and they're not, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, and we are. We're the new believers now. Huh. Look at you. We're in, you're out. And Paul says that attitude will get you into big trouble, because if you express that arrogance, you will get locked off. And so when he says, um, if some of the branches are broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. Paul was picking up that there was this growing arrogance among the non-Jewish believers against um, unbelieving Jewish people and possibly believing Jewish people that were among them. Like you, it's like saying to me, like, you know, you're part of those people who rejected Jesus, not like us. And that attitude is damaging and has been damaging. And sadly, the church didn't listen to him because church history is full of Christian, so-called Christian arrogance towards the Jewish people. Verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So me, Robin, Natan, our family, we are previously lopped off branches that have been regrafted into our own olive tree. 
And Paul says, if he, basically, if he could save Gentiles, how much more can he save Jewish people? That's what he's saying. And notice that he has no problem referring to the olive tree as their own olive tree. That's our olive tree. That's the tree that when we were chosen through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all that we went through, being in Egypt and slavery, and all the things that you treasure so much when you read the, the, the scriptures, these are our stories. They're now your stories through Jesus. And you share in our spiritual heritage, absolutely. But they're our stories. And it's important, it is important to remember that. It's important, each of us need to remember where we've come from. It took me years to, to fully accept the harm my people have done to God's reputation and to accept as a Jewish person where we've gone wrong. And so I don't have a problem talking about how all of us have gone wrong. We've all gone wrong, but we've all gone wrong in different ways. We all need to own our own sins, personally, historically. We all need to know where we've come from. We need to own that and understand it. We need to treasure the positive, and we need to reckon with the negative. Verse 24, For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary... Oh, sorry, I read that already. I guess I had it twice. I did. Okay. Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. Remember, he's writing to a primarily, or at this time, might have been exclusively non-Jewish group. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, this is where I want to cheer, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It's I still don't get why many scholars have trouble accepting that Paul is talking about the literal, natural, physical people of Israel here. Because as he quotes the Old Testament and says, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. From Jacob, that's Jacob's name was changed to Israel, but by calling him Jacob, he's reconnecting the people to his his like his natural, uh, almost like unredeemed state. This is there's no thought here of a spiritual Israel that somehow he's talking about that he resolves the problem of Jewish unbelief by saying, well, it's really all about believers. This is what the church has often taught that. Israel is just all believers. And, and, and so you can't say God's rejected Israel. But Paul's not saying that there. When he says, first of all, why is he even having this conversation? Why is he dealing with the issue of arrogance if he's talking about some sort of spiritual entity that has no real relation to the actual people? And so when he says all Israel will be saved, as is it written, he's saying that God made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to Moses, and to David, and through Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and so on. And God is a God of his word. God said he would redeem the Jewish people. He will do it. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. This again, if this is talking about a spiritual Israel, why would he talk this way? 
And he says they are enemies for your sake. This is what I was saying earlier. For the most part, who are the main antagonists towards the gospel? Sometimes it would be Roman kind of officials and those people, but by and large, it was Jewish leadership in the synagogues in the in the Roman Empire. So they're acting as antagonists. But don't don't make a mistake, Paul says. As from God's perspective, even though they're giving you a hard time, they are beloved for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Verse 29. God is a God of his word. We can trust in him. It's not about what they've done or or who they are. It's because of God's covenant promise. We are to be able to look at God's faithfulness to the Jewish people and know that that is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if he's faithful to the Jewish people, despite what we've done, he will be faithful to us. We don't have a God that comes up with one plan and then when it doesn't work, he throws it out and comes up with another plan. No, our God, when he, he sets his mind to something, he is going to complete it according to his purpose and design. You can count on that. Verse 30, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. It gets a little confusing here, and, I, and I'm going to finish up here. That God used the Jewish people, by and large, their disobedience to bring his mercy to the non-Jews. Just like he did that, so they too, the Jewish people, have now become disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Everybody blows it. Everybody blows it. If anything was based on our successes and our ability, we'd all be finished. And this is what we see throughout the book of Romans. It's by God's work of grace. It's what he's done, his plan, his goodness, his mercy. And he even used the disobedience of the Jewish people, by and large, their by and large disobedience, to bring his mercy to the nations. But what's supposed to happen? Now that you have received talking to you from the nations. I'm not talking to Natan right now. I'm talking to everybody else in the room, unless there's some Jewish people here I don't know about. Um, You have received mercy because of my people's disobedience. Now what's disobedience? Now what's supposed to happen? The mercy shown to you, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. That the mercy of God that you've received because of how we've blown it, is now to come back to us through you. Which is the opposite of what much of church history towards the Jewish people have been. It's been the opposite. There have been great exceptions, great exceptions, but they're still few and far between. God has entrusted his goodness, his word, his spirit, his son, to believers among the nations. And one of the reasons for that, not the only reason, one of the reasons for that is that through the nations, God's mercy and goodness and grace and spirit and power and son should come back to the Jewish people. He has given the obligation and the anguished burden that Paul was expressing in the beginning of chapter 9. He has given that to you if you will receive it. Will you 
hear God's heart for Israel? Will you receive God's heart for Israel? And will you begin to bring before God the cry that Paul was expressing? And I want to ask you, would you please, if you don't do so already, would you begin to commit yourself to pray for the physical and spiritual welfare of our people, the Jewish people? We need your prayers. We need our Messiah. And it's time for the church to recognize its great obligation to return the favor, so to speak, that God's favor might come upon our people. So as we move on to the next thing that God has for us, pray for our people. Would you pray for my family? Those who know that all the various things that some of our kids are involved in and the burdens that they're carrying, and they certainly need your prayers and pray for our people that we would come to know our own Messiah. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. Thank you that we have the compass of your word. We thank you that we have the foundation of your word. And for all of us, Lord, and even with the things that I said this morning, I offer it to you. You're the only one who truly understands these things. You're the only one who uh, correctly interprets them. And so I ask that we would all grow in the knowledge of your word according to your intentions. But this morning, Lord, as we look at this one subject, we ask that your mercy might come to the people of Israel, that you would answer the cry of your own heart, that based on your promises, based on your word, you would bring the restoration of Israel's sin. And that the truth about who he really is and what he means to Israel would be given. Lord, on one hand, it seems you don't need to use people, but you've chosen to use people. As much as I could tell, you want to use these people. And you want to use the church to bring your mercy back to our people. Would you do that and would you do that soon? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca. Thank you.